God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Lincoln. Here's Pastor Austin Edwards. I want you to know that our sin is ultimately against God. See, in Psalm 51, it, David prays in response to failing in a major way in sleeping with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And so he prays the whole, it's a repentance of Psalm 51. And in verse four, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Hold on, you sinned against Uriah, you sinned against Bathsheba. Yeah, that's true. Our sin affects other people, but ultimately our sin is against God. And so if you're tracking with that, if our sin is against him, then he's really the only one that can d- condemn us, right? And kind of the point of our verses is that um, the only one, God, who could condemn you has chosen not to because of what Jesus has done and is doing, right? That's the gospel. And his opinion of you, despite everyone else's and even yourselves, is what actually matters. His opinion is what matters. The world will choose to remember your sins and cling to your worst moments. Satan will continually try to accuse you and condemn you, and you will even try to condemn yourself, remembering your worst moments, but God has chosen to not hold your repetitive rebellion against you. That's the good news of our verses this morning, Romans 8, 33 and 34. Someone once told me that if, you're, if the world thinks you're Clark Kent, but your wife thinks you're Superman, you're Superman. And I'm like, amen. Yeah, that's so true, you know? And it's like, and I think the reverse is true, or the same thing is true with the gospel. If the world thinks you're a sinner, if Satan says you're a sinner, if you know you're a sinner, but God says you're a saint, well, you're a saint. You know, this is the good news of the gospel. And so just to repeat kind of this main thread, this main theme of the verses is that the only one who could condemn you has chosen not to because of what Jesus has done and is doing. And so if you look at verses 33 and 34, they ask two questions and they give two indisputable, uh, indefinite, beautiful answers. And so we'll read these uh, together, 33 and 34. Who shall bring uh, any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us right now. So I want to address the questions first, the two questions, who could bring any charge and who was condemned. And then I want to follow, the rest of the sermon will be then answering the questions uh, or uh, digging through his answers to them. And so the first thing I want us to see in this is that accusation and condemnation will hit, but they can't stick. Accusation and condemnation will hit, but they can't stick. So notice that neither one of these verses actually directly answer the question that they're posing. Like you'd think in response to questions like, who could condemn or who could bring a charge against you? The very first thing you would say is nobody. But he doesn't say that. He, he doesn't say no one. And I think it's on purpose because the point he's trying to make is people will try to bring a charge against you. People will try to condemn you. You'll try to condemn you. Satan will try to accuse you. But uh, as a, the life of a believer isn't freed from that, Jesus never promises that accusations will fade and condemnation won't be there anymore as far as an internal kind of pressure. And so, um, and so that's what he's drawing out. These things will come, but they won't stick. They'll hit you, but they won't stick. And so I want to be clear that verse 33 and 34 aren't basically saying the same thing. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's accusation. Who is to condemn? That's condemnation. And those two things are different. So uh, to be clear, accusation is to bring a charge against someone. It's 
it's, um, it's to make an allegation or to present an indictment on somebody. That's accusation. Condemnation, on the flip side, is to reach a final verdict. Um, it's for the lawyers in the room, it's adjudication. It's when, the, when the, the judge says this is the final verdict on them. And so um, it's sentencing and, and the gavel hitting, that's condemnation. So you see accusation is kind of initial, condemnation is the full culmination of it. And so we're going to look at these two things, these first two questions, through three lenses. Uh, relationally, spiritually, and personally. Looking at accusation and condemnation through those three things. So first, relationally. Now, if you're familiar with John chapter 8, um, Jesus uh, is, is hanging out, and these guys bring this woman in front of him. Now, the woman was caught in adultery, and they go, hey, Jesus, um, the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you think we should do? And they got boulders in, her, in their hands, and Jesus goes, well, yeah, first one that has, uh, without sin, totally throw the first stone. And they all drop their stones, and they have to walk away. And Jesus goes, they didn't condemn you, and neither do I. It's a beautiful story, but it gives us a glimpse into this posture and accusation and condemnation where we have rocks in our hands, or we've been hit by rocks, right? Like we love to throw stones. And listen, I'm, I'm not saying that we should be uninvolved in people's pursuit of Jesus. Like, don't hear me say that. We grow in community. We mourn in community. We rejoice in community. We transform in community. Christianity is not a solo mission. We need each other. But based on Jesus's warnings, our natural risk relationally isn't being too gracious. It's being too critical, Right? So he's not, he's not afraid of us being like, man, I, I love you. Like, that doesn't seem the natural. The natural posture is us being like, man, I don't know about you anymore. I don't know, you messed up one too many times. Like, this is the reality. So our natural proclivity is to notice other people's speck in their eye and forget about our log in ours. And it's probably because it makes us feel better about ourselves because we see other people sin or it makes us forget about our log in our eye or whatever. But Jesus rebukes that behavior and he says, we need to self-examine and handle our own stuff before we go and help somebody. And I want to point out in Matthew 7 where he says this about judgment, when Jesus mentions it, he says that once we remove the log from our eye, we can actually help be helpful to the person with a speck in theirs. So he doesn't say there's not involvement in other people's lives in dealing with sin, but he says, first you got to remove your log. In other words, the log coming out of your eye actually helps someone with a speck in theirs. And I think what he's talking about is humility. I think the point of what he's saying is there's, it's humility. It's, there's conversation. Uh, there's a grace around that conversation. I got a log and I just pulled it out and you got a little speck. So that changes the way we interact with each other. I think there's a humility that Jesus wants to invite us into relationally, but we don't want, want to walk around with gentle tweezers. We want to ro- uh, run around with hard rocks, right? We, we want to throw stones, we, we don't want to get to know the whole story or hear their side of it or genuinely see how we can help. And if, you, if you're like, I don't really think I struggle with accusation. Well, let me ask this. Do you struggle with assumption? Meaning when you see someone act a certain way or you hear something about someone or you see a post and then you don't know the whole story, but you've concluded your own conclusion based off of what you've seen without all the facts. That's assumption. And that's problematic because assumption turns into accusation. Right, I think this, therefore, I've decided this. And so um, what I mean is that we find out something about someone or observe something, but we don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. We don't know all the intricacies of it, but we make, our, we make a deduction based off of what we know. And oftentimes, when we don't know the whole narrative, we fill in the narrative with our negative intent. We assume that the person was mad at us or that they were careless in this or whatever. And it's like, Man, we just aren't giving each other the benefit of the doubt and we're grabbing stones rather than gentle tweezers. Um, and so I love asking people, help, help me understand. 
like, help me put the pieces together because it would be unfair and ungodly of me to try to assume what happened and why that happened. And so help me understand it. Help me put the pieces together. So not only do we struggle as perpetrators of accusation, but we've all suffered as victims of accusation, right? Like every single one of us. Within churches, we've been hurt. Uh, with, with other Christians, from pastors or leaders, from parents and friends. There's some deep hurt that each and every one of us are coming in with today from being accused. And you've been trying your best, and yet they chose to not believe you. You've been transforming, and Jesus is changing you, but all they can see is your flaws. Uh, all they point out is your old ways, claiming that you haven't actually changed. We've been accused, and we will be accused, and we've probably accused too, right? All of it. That's the relational mess that verse 33 is talking. Who shall bring a charge against us? Well, a lot of people, and we do too. And then he goes on, and then part of who shall bring a charge against us, this accusation isn't just relationally, it's also spiritually. So that was John 8. In Zechariah 3, Old Testament, Zechariah 3, 1 through 10, is a story of Joshua the high priest. And he's in, he's before God, and it says that Satan is next to him, accusing him. So he's throwing all these accusations at him. He's bringing charges against him. God rebukes him. It's a really cool thing. Joshua gets clothed, clothed with these pure white clothes. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Um, but that's the idea, is that not only are we accusing each other, but Satan is accusing us too. In Revelation 12, verse 10, Revelation 12, verse 10, it says that day and night, Satan accuses God's people. Day and night. So the picture is that Satan is throwing accusations at us. He never stops pointing out the discrepancy between our, our proclamation of faith and our problems with the flesh, he never stops pointing out the gap between our behavior and our belief. He never stops pointing out the fact that our commitments aren't lining up with our catastrophic failures. And he goes, God, do you not see them? Remember when they promised they would never do it again? Well, they're doing it again. They're hopeless. Give up on them. There's no way they haven't changed. Wipe them out. Give, give, give up on them. They're hopeless. Satan's accusations are rooted in his hope. Catch this, that the cross isn't as big as it really is. So I want you to know that Satan was there that day when Jesus died. He, 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 was, he was there. He saw him take his last breath. Satan popped the champagne, celebrating that hell had won and successfully killed Jesus. Satan saw our sin like a tsunami crash on Jesus's innocent shoulders. And hell partied for a couple days after Jesus had cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? They blew their confetti cannons, but on the third day, the party stopped, didn't it? The lamb that was slain came back to life and Satan scrambled in a frantic frenzy on what to do. And his false hope is that somehow that bloodied cross on Calvary didn't really cover all of our sins. Satan's false hope is that when Jesus said it's finished, he really meant it's mostly finished. Satan's false hope is that uh, the wrath of God wasn't fully satisfied, but mostly satisfied. His false hope is that we could slip from the sovereign hand of God, but Satan couldn't be more wrong. Amen? All of his accusations are in vain. It's wasted breath and energy. Without a single ounce of productivity, Satan still won't stop accusing you. It's what he does. And so to take those two in, that's verse 30. Who should bring a charge against us? Each other and Satan. And so people are pointing their fingers at us. I can't believe you would do that. How terrible that she would say that. And Satan is pointing his finger at us, begging God to do something about our endless sin. They don't really love you. They're gonna do the same thing tomorrow, but it doesn't end there. It gets even worse we point fingers at ourselves. We point fingers at ourselves. So last thing, so that's relationally, spiritually. Last one is personally. In 1 John 3, verse 20 says this, 
It's the first part of the verse. We'll read the second one later, but it says 1 John 3, verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us. For whenever our heart condemns us. See, the world may see our bad actions, but we see our bad motives. Even our best acts that the world applauds to are still tainted with our pride and sin. They may see the work of your hands, but you see the wretchedness of your heart. And other than God, no one knows your sin better than you. You know those moments when you were alone. You know your past littered with mistakes that you wouldn't want anyone else to know about. And so we condemn ourselves, unable to believe that we are infinitely loved, struggling to internalize that there really is nothing we could do to make him love us more. And there's nothing we could do to make him love us less, wrestling with scandalous grace. And so listen, yes, we're a missional church. We, we wanna preach the gospel to our neighbors like crazy. We wanna preach the gospel to the next generation of college students and all the way down to babies in the crib, right? We, we wanna preach the gospel in new cities like Kearney and Grand Island and around. We, we wanna reach the nations and go impact the 1040 window. But the most important person to preach the gospel to is yourself. The most important person to preach the gospel to daily is yourself. But rather than reminding ourselves of the gospel, we remind ourselves of our guilt. Rather than remembering what Jesus has done for us, we can't stop thinking about what we've done wrong to him. And we condemn ourselves. And the whole reality to why accusations and condemnations work in the life of a Christian is because we're listening more to them than to God. And frankly, it's louder. Like those things are louder. And we're choosing to look inward at ourselves or outward to others, or downward to Satan, rather than upward to Jesus in his finished work on the cross. And so all of this, who can bring a charge against us? Lots of people. Who could condemn? We can condemn ourselves, right? But the whole point we're trying to get to that Romans 8, 33 and 34 is leading towards is, but it won't stick. All those things have, have lost their power. It doesn't matter who tries to accuse you. It doesn't matter who tries to condemn you. God's the one who justifies. God's the one who died, raised, is exalted, and is interceding for you right now. So we're trying to answer that question. How have they lost their power? And I want to, as we're transitioning now to the answers of these two verses, remember that main point. The only one who could condemn you has chosen not to because of what Jesus has done and is doing. And so look at verse 30 again. And I want you to notice the tense of these verbs describing the Christian's life. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What tense are they all in? Past tense, right? They've already happened. That's beautiful. That's describing the Christian life. But notice in verses 33 and 34, it says it's God who justifies. And he says, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's talking about active present tense verbs. And so, um, Kristen and I, my wife, bought an acre, a little acreage on the northeast side of town. We close next month. We're elated. We can't believe it. We're so excited, right? Um, but we're a little bit notorious for moving a lot, okay? So we've literally owned four houses in Lincoln in the last six years, and this will be our fifth. So don't judge. We just talked about accusations, okay? Like this is a gracious culture, right? Um, but, um, but we're moving. We're, we're so excited. Um, but guess what that means for our closest friends? Hey, guys, what are you doing on September 30th? Oh, I don't know something. Really? You're not. You're. You're not. You're not free. Nope, not for you, buddy. I'm not moving you again. You know, it's like I already had the conversations. I'm like, they're like, I'm not moving you again. Like, do you know how many times I put that black leather couch in the basement? My back hurts. I'm like, yeah, but I got you pizza. They're like, I can buy pizza at pizza. Like, for, I don't. But I can, I need to save my back. I just spent a couple hundred dollars on chiropractic the next week. I'm like, I get it. But would you still come? You know. So we might have to hire movers this time. I don't know. But but we have exhausted all of our relational capital to move. Uh, but. But um, 
but we love, we love helping people, don't we? Like, we're, we're Midwesterners. We pride ourselves in that. Like, we'll say yes to help with someone. Um, but when we start to resist helping is when someone keeps needing our help, okay? Yeah, of course, I'll help you move once, twice, God, five times, you know, like there's just some, there's just a limit. It's like, yeah, I want to help you, but it not, not forever, not, not continually. We just kind of, we kind of do that. We didn't sign up to, to, to do that. And so verse 34, this end of it, that Jesus is interceding, this present tense uh, uh, aspect of the gospel has been blowing my mind. Do you, do you understand what verse 34 means? That Jesus is interceding right now? Listen, Jesus didn't just die for you 2,000 years ago. Wipe off his divine hands and go sit on his couch. He is still helping. He's still engaged. He never stopped. So listen, the gospel isn't that Jesus, just that Jesus died for you. It's that Jesus is currently living for you. He is actively, currently, faithfully involved in interceding for you right now. And he never gets tired. He never debates on stopping. He's never reluctant to help you again. The gospel isn't just what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago, but it's what he's doing today in heaven for you. And so just like accusation and condemnation are different, I want to show us how justification and intercession are uh, two different things. And so justification, what it's talking about in verse 33, uh, is God making you righteous. Intercession, in verse 34, is God keeping you righteous. Okay, verse 34, justification is that God gave his life for you. Verse 34, intercession is that God is giving his life for you. Justification is what Jesus has done. Intercession is what Jesus is doing. You get what I'm saying? And so uh, just to look at those, we're gonna kind of take apart verse 34 bit by bit. He describes four things that Jesus has done and is doing. And so first, verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Okay, so he died, his, his death, Jesus's death. Uh, he died and he secured the removal of sin's power and guilt. And so in Hebrews 9, Verses 26 and 27, the writer of Hebrews is just explaining, hey, there was a problem with the old sacrificial system that your sin needed to keep being paid for. The priests had to keep going and sacrificing. But verse 27 says, Jesus has spilt his blood once and for all. He removed all of the guilt and all of the sin forevermore. So his death was the final act once and for all. You, there's nothing else for you to do. 100% of the wrath of God was satisfied in that. This is death. And then he says, more than that, in verse 34, who was raised. So not only his death, but his resurrection. Jesus was raised to life and he now will raise those who believe in him. And so John 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. And anyone who believes in me won't, will, will have life after death. Like it's this promise that death has lost its sting. Jesus killed death. Like he made death die. And then for those who believe in Jesus, we live eternally with him and will be resurrected. Romans 8 has talked about that. So that's what he's done. And then what he's doing is the second two, he says, uh, who, uh, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God. So this is his exaltation. And so he was exalted the right hand of God with all power and authority. Philippians 2 lays this out, that Jesus had self-demoted, lowered himself to the point of death on a cross, but God had highly exalted him back to his place where he originally was at the right hand of God. So now he has all authority. Every tongue should confess that he's Lord. Every knee shall bow to him. So he is exalted. And that matters because of his intercessory work. So the last thing he ends the verse with in verse 34 is who indeed is interceding for us. So this is his intercession. He is fighting for us, interceding for us at the throne of grace. Hebrews 4 talks about how he's there and he's sympathizing and we can approach that throne with confidence because our representative Jesus is there. So catch this, what he has done and what he is doing is why condemnation doesn't work, is why accusation can't stick. 
And so I just want to ask a question because I feel like the idea of intercession is underdeveloped for most of us. We're just like, what, what is that? What's it look like? So I want to explain a couple of things to actually put some flesh and bones on this idea of intercession. In a simple way, all intercession is, is, is fighting, someone fighting for you. Um, and so someone sticking up for you, defending you, guarding you. And so we all have intercessors in our life, if we understand it that way. You've got your parents, you've got your, your friends, you've got your significant other, you've got your church family. And I think it's amazing that your mom is fighting for you and interceding for you, but she's not at the right hand of God. And I love that your friends are sticking up for you and defending you and all that stuff, but they don't have holes in their hands from nails pierced through them on sacrificing on the cross. And so the one we actually want to intercede for us, the one who actually can do something is Jesus. And the good news of verse 34 is he's doing that. At the right hand of God with holes in his hands and the full authority of God, he is interceding for us. Now, again, I know there's, we're packing in a bunch of scripture into this, but Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that he is he always lives to intercede for us. So when does he intercede? Does he, so same way, Satan hurts donuts 25 hours a day, eight days a week. When does Jesus intercede then? 26 hours a day, nine days a week, right? Like he's always interceding for us. He never stops either. So that's when he does, always. But what does he do? I wanna give you eight truths for what, what uh, eight pictures and verses of what, uh, intercession looks like, okay? So eight things. They're all Ps, by the way. I did struggle last night. I looked up some synonyms for some words. But anyways, they're all Ps. Number one, Jesus' intercession, intercession he, he, he pleads for you. Jesus pleads for you. In Luke 23, verse 34, when Jesus is being nailed to the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, Jesus pleads for us. Father, would you forgive them? Would you spare them? Number two, in his intercession, Jesus protects you. He protects you. In John 8, we cover this in verse seven. Uh, he, he, he tells the people, hey, let the first one of you without sin throw the stone and they all have to drop their stones. And he walks up to her and says, do they condemn you? She goes, no. He says, neither do I. So he protects us from these condemning rocks actually hitting us. He protects us in his intercession. Number three, Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us. So if you read John 17, it's all Jesus's high priestly kind of intercessory prayer. And in verse 15, he says, would you keep them from the evil one? And verse 17, he says, would you sanctify them? So Jesus prays for us in his his intercession. Number four, Jesus pays for you. Jesus not only prays for you, but he pays for you. So in Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says that Jesus would, this is a promise of what he's going to do, bore the sin of many, making intercession for transgressors. So it's connecting his cross and his blood and his, his sufficient sacrifice as a means to intercede for you, that the payment is made, that every sin, you can never go, you can never, grace can never go bankrupt. There's just no way you could ever outspend it. Number five, Jesus presents your case. Jesus presents your case. So in 1 John uh, 2 verse one, it says that we have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ. And so there's this idea of a lawyer, this pro bono, top tier lawyer, Jesus defending us and his whole defense argument are the holes in his hands and the hole in his side is sufficient cross. Number six, seven and eight are all doing with his intercessory work towards Satan. But number six is he prevents Satan. If Satan is our accuser, if he tries to condemn these last three or how he fights it, number six is he prevents Satan. And Luke 22 verses 31 and 32, he tells Peter, hey, Peter, Satan demanded to have you. He was begging for you, but Jesus says, but I prayed for you. 
So I, I, I'm holding Satan off. I'm preventing him from doing what he wants to do. Number seven, I had to get creative with this. He pushes mute on Satan, okay? He pushes mute on Satan. Zechariah 3, talked about it with Joshua the high priest, and he's accusing, and the Lord shouts, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Basically, shut up. Like, you don't get to say this about these people. He pushes mute and silences him. Number eight, and finally, his intercessory work is that he punishes Satan. He punishes Satan. So in Revelation 12, Verse 10, that he day and night accuses, it says that Jesus has thrown down the accuser. So he's just like, no, I'm done. So listen, though we have accusations hurled at us, no one can make them stick. Not one work of condemnation will last. And listen, it's almost like with the gospel, you have this like nonstick spray on you. Like accusations will come buckets at a time, overwhelming, and they're gonna hit you, I just promise you that, but they will bounce right off. Why? Because Jesus has died, resurrected, is exalted, and he is interceding. And so it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks of you. It doesn't matter what Satan thinks of you. It doesn't even matter what you think of you. All that matters is what God thinks about you, and he says he loves you. He says he's for you. He says he's crazy about you and that you are uncondemnable. No accusation can stick. They can bring charges against you, but it's all in vain. And so with his pierced hands raised, he is preventing accusations from sticking to you. And with his uh, uh, um, pierced hands raised, and he's standing in front of the Father, preventing condemnation toward us, Jesus is always interceding for us. So we just wanna finish asking the question like, well, then what now? Like, what do we do with verses 33 and 34? And I wanna give two applications. Relationally, the first one, and the next one is spiritually. So relationally, application, stop condemning the ones that Jesus justifies. Like if we could just be a community and believers who stop condemning the ones that Jesus justifies. So listen, track with me for a second. If we know that right now, every single one of us is being continually accused. Like day and night, 25 hours a day, eight days a week, Satan is trying to remind us of our sin, prohibiting us from believing in the scandalous grace of Jesus, trying to convince us that there's no way that we could be loved. And we know within ourselves that internally we struggle with condemning ourselves. We have negative self-talk always. We look in the mirror and we're ashamed. I mean, doesn't that impact the way we see each other? And the way we talk to other Christians of just knowing like, man, you're, you're being attacked right now. And, and by Satan or by other people or by yourself, you're, you're being accused. You're sitting on, under some type of condemnation. And, and it just feels like rather than us knowing that and responding, it's almost like we're adding weight to people. Hey, you should do this. You should try. And it's like, what if we were just the people who just couldn't stop preaching the gospel to ourselves and other people? Like you couldn't hang out with somebody and they would leave and they, they would have never been able to leave without hearing the gospel and that Jesus is interceding for them. Like what if rather than putting weight on people, we took it off? Like if that was our thing, if we're saying, Jesus, you've justified them, you're keeping them, you're interceding for them. And I just want to encourage them and I want to lift them up in the gospel. I want to remind them of the scandalous grace of Jesus. Stop condemning the ones that Jesus justifies. And number two, I don't have to intercede for myself. I don't have to intercede for myself. Not a big fan of the whole pastor say this, but I literally think you need to say those words out loud. So on three, one, two, three, I don't have to intercede for myself. Can you think of any other better news than this? I don't have to defend myself. 
I don't have to pretend that I'm better than I really am. I can finally stop worrying about what God thinks of me. He loves me. I can be done trying to make my sin seem less bad than it really is. I can stop wasting my energy comparing myself to other people. I can take the fig leaves off. I can remove the mask. If the world thinks I'm a sinner, if Satan says I'm a sinner, if I know I'm a sinner, but God says I'm a beloved saint, well, I'm a beloved saint. Have you guys heard of uh, Daisy Theology? Anyone ever heard of Daisy Theology? Not Tulip. We're pro Tulip, but, uh, but, but, but Daisy Theology. Uh, if you were a kid and you saw a Daisy and you'd pick the petals and you'd go, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Or if you're a guy, she loves me, she loves me not. And then it was like, if she landed on she loves you, you're like, okay, I'm gonna ask her on a date, you know? I'm gonna take her to Subway, it's gonna be great, you know? <laughs> but it's almost like we spend our lives in Daisy Theology. I mean, every day it just kind of switches or moment by moment. He loves me. Oh, this is amazing. He's so for me. He loves me not. I screwed up last night. I did that thing I promised I'd never do. He loves me. Oh, he forgives me. He's for me. He loves me not. Dang it, man. I'm just, I don't even know, you know? And I'm just saying in the gospel, every petal on that daisy says he loves you. And there's nothing you could do to ever change that. And no day, no stained fingertips could ever change what is written on those petals. He loves you. Like the old hymn says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Austin Edwards from City Light Lincoln. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net. 